So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education, and we're pretty thrilled to see so many of you here on a Friday afternoon. So I, this, this speaks to the great topic and our great presenter, I think. Um, and we know that there may be folks also watching from their home computer, so welcome to you folks as well. Um, so my housekeeping, little housekeeping job that I must do before we start the program, and that is to be sure that all of you who are here sign the attendance sheet. Um, you, in order to receive your continuing nursing education credit, you must attend 80% of this program. And for those of you who are viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you need to contact Judy Langhans uh, via email, and that's judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Uh, she will relay your questions to our speaker. We also need you to contact her within an hour after the conclusion of the program and let her know that you were in attendance uh, in order to get your attendance registered as well. Um, Post-conference, everyone will receive a link to an online evaluation form within 24 hours and just complete that and send it back so that we can uh, receive your feedback. And that's very important to us, so we really do hope that you will complete that evaluation form. Your contact hour, actually it's going to be 1.5 contact hours. Um, that will be posted on your, uh, to your online transcript within a month following um, this presentation. Uh, there are instructions on how to access your online transcript by the sign-in sheet for folks who are here, or you can contact Judy directly um, if you have any trouble with that. And finally, for those of you who are here, please silence your cell phones and pagers. Uh, we want you to know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity um, or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So our presentation today is entitled Healthcare Reform, What Nurses Need to Know. And I'm going to invite our Chief Nursing Officer Linda Von Ryan up here uh, to the podium to introduce, introduce a very special speaker this afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here. So I'm delighted uh, to have the honor this afternoon of introducing our speaker. And so uh, first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her educational background, and then I'll tell you a bit about her experience background. And so um, Betty got her BS in nursing from the University of Mary, which is in Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, hardy country, just like here in the Northeast, and then uh, went on to get her uh, nurse practitioner, become a nurse practitioner also from the University of North Dakota. Uh, and following that, she got her master's degree and her PhD from Rush University. And so um, our more current relationship with Betty is uh, in her, the role that she has played at the University of Vermont. Uh, she was actually the founding dean of the School of Nursing at the University of Vermont. Congratulations. Thank you. That's college a tremendous of college of nursing at uh, University of Vermont. That's a tremendous honor. And she's well published, um, has research uh, in her background, and uh, interestingly um, ha is now teaching on the graduate faculty at uh, the University of Vermont. But for the purposes of our meeting today, She's here because of a, most, a more recent appointment that she received. 
So I'm gonna take a moment and pause and talk a little bit about the action campaign, the action coalitions, which we have talked about amongst ourselves. As you know, the IOM report on the future of nursing, advancing health, ha uh, asked each state to have an action coalition, and in each state there is. One of the pillars of the action coalition is leadership. And so each of the states is working on their action coalition pillar of leadership, and the goal of that pillar is actually to assist nurses to be on boards of organizations that can have an impact in healthcare. And fortunately for the state of Vermont, and I imagine for us, Betty was named as a member of the Green Mountain Care Board in August of this year. It's a five-member board, so it's truly a prestigious honor to be selected to the board. And it's uh, she also teaches health policy, which is her background, but she's coming to us from her perspective of a board member on the Green Mountain Health Care Board and as a faculty for this topic to speak with us this afternoon. So please help me to welcome Betty. Thank you. Let me just make sure I'm live. Can you all hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Well, I'm very honored to be here with you today, and I'm particularly honored because you've taken time out from your busy day to be here on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> and those of you that are hearing this later virtually, thank you as well. Um, So this, this is the overview of the presentation, and I think you have that in your materials. But the heart of it is, what do we as nurses really need to know to serve our patients and to serve the citizens of our state, of our region, and our world? And that's the heart of it. And you can see, we'll be talking about the history of how healthcare got the way it is, um, payment and finance reform. But then given all the changes that are happening, what do we need to do? How do we need to think about the things we need to do to be able to bring the vision that we know serves patients well into the world? So the goals of the reform, you sometimes hear about cost containment and all of that. But from my perspective, the goals of reform is to have, whether it's Vermont or New Hampshire, to be the best place in the nation to be a citizen, to be the best place in the nation to be a patient, to be the best place in the nation to be a provider, and the best place in the nation to be an employer. And sometimes that, these can be in conflict. But when I think about medical care, health care, health, and human flourishing, or um, eudaimonia, it's really about human flourishing. How do we live in these rural states and be well and be happy and have what we need? And nurses are an essential step to that goal. I do not believe this nation can meet the aims of cost containment and quality with an access without knowledgeable nurses at the working surface and in leadership positions. So this is an unprecedented opportunity for our patients, for if nurses really can grab hold of these things. I just want to think about why nurses. Is it that I'm really promoting nurses? Is that really that I care about our patients? But if you think about skilled nursing facilities, that has an awful lot to do with nurses and nursing homes. Home health care, an awful lot to do with nurses and nursing care. And what about hospital care? Have you ever thought about the fact that if a patient is admitted to the hospital, it's because they need nursing care? If they wouldn't need nursing care, they'd be an outpatient, right? So where are we? We're everywhere. 
And to create a sustainable healthcare system, we really need that vision, that knowledge that we have at the working surface. But when I think about payment reform, which I'm deeply um, involved with now and will be sharing with you some of those insights, I think often of what Einstein said after the atomic bomb went off. He said, everything has changed but the way we think. And I sometimes feel that's true, not just for nurses, but other providers as well, because we're so busy with what we're doing, it's hard to put our heads up. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, current reform, uh, including payment reform. But to really understand it, we have to look back. And this is Janus, the Greek god of transitions. And I thought it was perfect for January, looking back to look forward. Now, we have to recall that the sort of world we live in now with an amazing facility like this, a world-class uh, hospital, was not always how people thought about hospitals. At the turn of the century, not this last one, the last before, <laughs> people didn't want to go into hospitals. Hospitals, the, the movement in the late 1800s, the, the hospitals were really gaining some momentum, but it wasn't the kind of thing we think about now. Hospitals were to get people out of the streets. It was to get the undesirables. It was to get the, those with infectious disease, those that didn't have anyone to care for them, those that were considered insane. It was to get them out of the streets because people got their care at home, even if it was only watchful waiting. That is where people got their care, and the physician might have gone out, gone out with the buggy. But So that is how the world was in, at that time. And so people didn't go to the hospitals. So that's a little bit of a problem for a hospital who's trying to survive, right? You need some patients. So Baylor Hospital in 1929 had this brilliant idea. For 50 cents a month, we will have teachers be able to get a list of things on this menu at our hospital. It has to be at Baylor, it has to be only these. That was the beginning of employer-based insurance. That, that right there, and we'll see how that grew. Well, as the Great Depression deepened and hospital occupancy fell, similar plans grew. And so the American Hospital Association thought, you know, this is a really good idea, but we should make it that people could go to different hospitals. And that actually was the beginning of Blue Cross. That is how Blue Cross started. Um, well, as the Great Depression grew, um, they, people couldn't also pay physicians for care, right? A lot of bartering went on. In fact, in my own family, I heard, I've heard the story a million times, my father telling the story how they gave somebody the chicken once a year for saving the brother from diphtheria or whatever the story was. But you know, most of us don't want to be paid by chickens, really. Um, and so there wasn't money to pay for pay physicians. And so the same concept was the birth of Blue Shield. So that's how it got started. Now, unlike Europe, uh, for example, Germany has an employer-based system. It really wasn't consumer-driven. It was provider-given to create reimbursement, guaranteed income for hospitals, and guaranteed income for physicians. Now, as um, World War II went on, there were wage freezes, so people could not give increases in salaries. And yet there was a, uh, a competition for employees. And so um, fringe benefits grew, including employer-based insurance, more benefits, more different kinds of things that could be done, et cetera. And so the union took up that cause after the war. So from the beginning, health insurance ended up was a pre-tax subsidy from the government because it was in, in fringe benefits rather than salary. 
Does that make sense? Everybody with me so far? So this idea of, and I know we hate the word consumer, but just for the purpose of this argument or this discussion, could we use it? Instead of having an interaction between a provider and a patient, there is a third party, and that's why insurance companies are called third-party payers. Now, a couple of things happen in this kind of arrangement. I'm only going to touch on this briefly because some of these are directly related to current reforms. In a regular classic free market without a third party, the consumer, the buyer, and the seller have a particular kind of relationship. So for example, did anybody drive here to Rolls Royce today? We would. <laughs> and why not? Well, of course, because you would have to pay for that, and you would have to um, actually uh, have that out of the rest of your income. So when you're thinking about a new car, do I keep my old yellow Studebake, or do I get a used car, do I get a new one? Whatever the situation is, you bear the financial uh, impact of that. And of course, we're shielded from the immediate cost of our decision to use healthcare. So that's one way it's different. There's other ways. Uh, for example, um, in a regular market, people know how to access information about a product. You know, you kind of know the difference between the old car and the used car, or you can find out. In healthcare, there's an enormous asymmetry of information. And there's a number of things that are happening that, probably, that are not going to go away. Like, Co-pays and deductibles are ways to make people feel the impact of their decision. And just right now, it was, you know, in the waiting room for a minute, I heard someone saying, "Oh, Medicare, now I have to pay something when I go." Well, that's that's to make you feel an impact. It's sort of a self-modulating piece. Um, report cards, information, data, everywhere, right? Again, to try to get rid of some of that asymmetry of information. Now, there's more on here, but I won't go into them right now. The next little piece I would just want to make sure we all have similar information is how does insurance work? Well, insurance, the well carry the sick. So in this example, you see everybody's pouring money to the insurance pool, right? They're putting money in the insurance pool. But you don't actually know if you're going to be this person with a catastrophic illness or whatever. You don't know who you're going to be. And so insurance is simply a way to spread risk, to share risk among the group. So if you have, if you imagine that this is an ill person and these are welfare people, the cost of that care is spread over a lot of people, right? So you can imagine that those insurance premiums would be pretty low, right? Well, what if every third one or every fifth one, et cetera, or every other one is red? So you can see the cost of healthcare becomes more expensive. You can also see why larger insurance pools can keep costs down a little bit better than the smaller insurance pool. Right, because there's just more people to shred this. So who's left out of employer-based insurance? The unemployed, right? People who work places that don't provide insurance. The retired. And the self-employed. And the self-employed, right. So, so you see there's very, various categories of individuals who are left out of employer-based insurance. And by 1965, by the 1960s, the group most likely to be living in poverty was what they used to call the elderly, but I don't call that that anymore because it's those 65 and above. And it gets closer every year. Those 65 and above um, because of medical bankruptcy, because you're more likely to have illnesses as you age, right? So in the social climate of the 1960s, Medicare was the solution to the unintended consequence of employer-based insurance that let the people who retired out. And Medicaid, the solution to address those that were uninsured because of disabilities, um, poor women that weren't working, et cetera. 
So Medicare and Medicaid were the, a solution, a fix to the unintended consequences of employer-based insurance. Everybody with me? Well, this created a very interesting thing because the first, for the first time, we had money in the system, fuel in the system, a revenue stream for individuals guaranteed to be ill. This was all within fee-for-service. Everybody's familiar with fee-for-service, right? Every time you come in, you know, you get, there's, it's like a little ching-ching-ching, and every Q-tip that's used is charge, et cetera, et cetera. All within fee-for-service. Um, and there was a marked escalation in utilization of healthcare, the availability of services and their growth. So if you look at a graph of physician incomes, there's a spike, and it goes up, and that year is 1965. If you look at the growth of nursing specialties, there's a spike, and that year is 1965, because there was money in the system. There was also an enormous amount of unbundling of services. Is that a term that's familiar to you? Uh, so when I was a pop, there were some things we did as nurses that later on became unbundled, and physical therapists did them for a charge, for a reimbursement for a code. And so the one thing that remained bundled is hospital-based nursing care. Other things were unbundled. So you could see that there's this, this, this incentive, there's opportunity, there's money in the system, and um, opportunities to really grow, uh, uh, grow services. And the, the patient doesn't have an immediate in, you know, in, uh, reason to hold back, and the providers didn't have an immediate reason to hold back. And so, you see, this is a story of trend. In Vermont, the healthcare is roughly 20% of the gross domestic product, which means one out of every five dollars is spent on healthcare, which means it's not available for education. It doesn't mean it's not available for disposable income. If we were a nation, we would be the most expensive healthcare system in the world. So that's a problem. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about um, cost shifting because I really want to get into some of the um, the particulars of the current reform. But cost shifting is important to understand because Medicare reimburses that costs, not charges. Medicaid reimburses at less than cost. And those costs are then shifted to private pay, commercial insurance. And that's why the economists, you can see that on the graph here, as well as costs for those uh, who are not uh, covered at all. And that's why uh, economists like Uwe Reinhardt call employer-based insurance as a hidden tax on the employees of the employers who provide health insurance. So workers are paying for others through Medicare, through their taxes. They're paying for others through Medicaid, through their taxes. And they're having a reduction in their own real income through paying for their own insurance. The employer offers it, but it's really at a reduction in real wages. And you're also paying for others through cost shifting. Very difficult for the public to understand. So the impetus for change is the paradox of overtreatment and undertreatment. And I have to say, I am personally extraordinarily impressed by the work that this organization is doing, both on shared decision making and also overtreatment, uh, over screening re related to overtreatment. Leaders in the world. You've all seen undertreatment in patients harmed, right? But I know that you've all seen overtreatment. We all have. We see it. IOM suggests that one-third of what we do makes absolutely no difference. One-third of what we do. That's a lot, and that means that money is not available for other kinds of things. Now, the cost, 
you know, it has an impact on other segments of our, of our infrastructure. The best predictor of a child's health status in aggregate uh, is the educational level of its mother, right? So maybe if we want to do something about child health, we want to think about education, job development, right? Um, job creation, important. Socioeconomic class is extremely important. Disposable income, you'd probably rather have money in your pocket than spending money on something I don't need, right? Um, and also, the cost of our healthcare is in our products. Um, I've heard it said the most expensive ingredient in Starbucks coffee is the health insurance of their employees. We know that that was true. <laughs> we know that that was true in Detroit. Part of what made that thing unworkable is the single most expensive ingredient in a car rolling off the assembly line was not the steel, whatever it was, the cost of health care for the employees. And that ripples through our economy. So we, you know about uneven quality. You folks are, again, the leaders in small area variation. Um, and that's extremely important. So we lag behind other developed nations on so many indicators. And depending on which list you look, it's a little different. One list I looked, we were 33rd, right behind Croatia. But in any case, we pay a lot more there's also a growing understanding of the difference between health care, medical care, health care, and health. And access to care is an enormous amount of money in this nation, and it's thought to be responsible for roughly 10% of our health status. Again, looking healthy behaviors being very, very linked to social, socioeconomic determinants of health, so can the environment be related. So there has been a history of reform, and actually, Teddy Roosevelt was the first. Um, the Affordable Care Act, actually, uh, Richard Nixon put forward proposal very, um, had many similar elements. And for those of you that are interested, that's in health affairs. Lyndon Johnson, of course, being um, 1965 Medicare and Medicaid. But we have the Affordable Care Act in um, nationally. And I am going to talk about uh, Vermont's um, reform as well, because is it 30% of your patients are Vermonters? 40% of your patients are Vermonters. But also, we're really um, leading the way in payment reform. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Now, I'm not calling this Obamacare. I don't know if you've seen the studies. When people are asked, what do you think about Obamacare? Very, you know, can be very What do you think about the Affordable Care Act? I like it much better. It's very, very good. <laughs> they are, of course, the same thing. Right. Um, but before, before we do that, I just want to separate out things that I think sometimes can be confusing in people's minds until we think about it. How things are financed is one thing. How the money comes into the system, and then how they're reimbursed and what they're reimbursed for is another. Vermont is moving to a single-payer system, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in my view, the real dramatic changes is in reimbursement, the payment reform. That is what's really, um, I think, very revolutionary and sort of not seen or heard. So there's three ways, four ways, I guess, to have universal financial coverage, national health insurance. You can have employer mandates, which means every employer has to offer insurance and every employee has to take it. That's one way of having everybody covered. Hawaii had that approach. You can have individual mandates. Every person has to have insurance. Switzerland had that. You can have it publicly funded via taxes or premiums. Publicly funded via taxes is often called a single payer. Medicare is a single payer system for those 65 and above. Medicare is a single payer system for those 65 and 
them. And one of the things I often hear is people say, government has no place in healthcare, <laughs> and we really have to do better on Medicare reimbursement. And so that's sort of a <laughs> Or you can have a hybrid of these, which is exactly actually what the Affordable Care Act is. Betty, can I ask you a quick question? Yes. So if you looked around the world, yes. what is the most common? Do you have Oh, a that is such a good question. Um, every nation is somewhat different. Yeah. And they often reflect values of the culture and also history. So Canada has a publicly funded single payer, but it's fee for service. So it's retained all the elements that lead to utilization. Taiwan has put together their own sort of thing based on what they thought worked better. Um, Switzerland and the Netherlands, don't call me on that one, have individual mandates. But the cultures are so different in terms of what, what they think, what they expect. Um, so they're very, very different. Um, um, uh, Germany has um, an employer-based system with sick funds. So they're, they're different. They're, they, they have similar elements. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Good question. So even though, you know, here's the crossroads, I do think it sometimes feels like this to people because it's so confusing. Um, <laughs> now, I want to underscore that this is not, national health insurance is not socialized medicine. I mean, some of my colleagues around the country say, oh, you're in Vermont, in Vermont, they're moving to socialized medicine. It is not socialized medicine. Socialized medicine is like in the former Soviet Union where healthcare was publicly funded, but the providers were employees of the state, of the nation. Very different kind of model. And then also just to underscore that how the money comes into the system, boom, is different than how the money goes out. So um, here's the analogy I use with my college students. Are, are any of your parents giving you money on a monthly piece? That's the financing of it, right? What you spend it on is, is payment is the equivalent of reimbursement. Okay, so I'm going to just give you key elements of the Affordable Care Act, and then I really want to get to payment reform because to me, payment reform is really where all of you have the opportunity to really transform the world. So um, the Affordable Care Act, children stay on their parents can stay on their parents' policy to age 26, whether they're dependents or not. And what's interesting to me about this, this actually suggests to me sort of the social transformation where we've all just accepted that young people at that age can't really find their own job with insurance, right? I mean, I have kids that age and um, individual health insurance mandate. So everybody has to have health, health insurance, but if you can't afford it, it'll be subsidized. Employees with 50 or more employees must provide health coverage or pay a penalty and elimination of pre-existing condition and lifetime care caps. So remember when I talked about the insurance pool, the one way to keep premiums down is not let anybody sick in the pool, right? So anybody who's sick can't, can't come in, and that creates real problems. So this law um, removes that exemption, those exemptions. Now, I don't think I'll take the time to show you this, but um, Health insurance exchanges are really, there's been so much in the press, and I'm not attempting to, to you know, protect them. They're not in the Green Mountain Care shop, I will say, but um, I think they've done uh, a very good job given how complex it is. But the health insurance exchange is to just allow people to look and see what the options are and choose the plan that's best for them. It's actually just to lay things out side by side. 
enormously technically complicated to, to put together. This is a small bump that will smooth out. It will smooth out because conceptually, it's very simple. There's different level plans. Do you, you know the metals? Bronze, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. And they cover the same essential benefits, but you make a decision whether you want to have a bigger deductible in co-pays and pay less each month, or do you want to pay more each month and a smaller deductible in co-pays. So if you take a look at this, it's actually a very, it's really a simple concept, an extraordinarily complicated thing to put together that I'm very confident we'll just look back on it. It'll be like when we go on Amazon.com and they say, hello, Betty, we have a great book for you. Um, Medicaid expansion to all those below 133% of poverty, that the Supreme Court did not uphold. So there was a Supreme Court challenge to whether or not the individual mandate penalty was a tax, and you can't tax without, uh, you can't tax in that matter, and the Supreme Court did not uphold that. They did uphold that you cannot require states to up their Medicare, Medicaid. High-risk insurance pool, and then state experimentation funding. And it's this latter that I really wanted to talk about. Now, um, state-level reform builds on the federal. But in the Affordable Care Act, they recognize that, OK, we're going to get everybody covered with insurance. But we've had this fee-for-service thing. We need to think about doing something differently. Um, I mentioned that. It's not sustainable. We talk about when government pays, it's really paid for through taxes, right? If it's Medicare, Medicaid, taxes, if it's employer use premium. Um, this is the goals of Vermont's health reform. And reduce health care costs and growth, fairness and equity, improve the health of Vermonters, whether they're getting their care at Dartmouth-Hitchcock or in Vermont. And in reform, there is um, a lot happening. This is the Greenmount Care Board that's responsible for payment reform and cost containment. Governor's office is going to figure out how this thing is financed and then expansion of um, the uh, primary care. So there is a board charged with changing the way we pay for health care, uh, a detailed plan for the publicly funded single payer, and an established state health benefit. So we are currently in a situation of regulation, innovation, and then serving really an evaluative function at the end, including what's the impact of a single-payer system on the rest of the economy in the state of But I really want to get to payment reform, because this is where I think the real opportunity is. So payment reform focuses on um, so the focus on payment reform is to move away from fee-for-service. And there was just an article in, um, I think it was New York Times this week, and, and I don't know if any of you saw it, it was on um, certain, certain kinds of specialty care, but the reporter, you can tell, was very angry and called fee-for-service, said that, that that treats patients like little ATM machines. Yeah. I mean, that is some pretty scathing language. So there is an attempt to move from away from fee-for-service, building on advanced primary care, and including all payers. So well, what's wrong with fee-for-service? It creates uh, volume-based care rather than value-based. It creates payment silos, right? You can have this kind of service, but you have no incentive to actually try to coordinate with this other kind of service provision over there. It rewards providers who do more rather than better. It creates this uh, disincentives for coordination. 
and definitely contributes to our inability to control costs. Now, I just want to stress before I go on talking about, yes? I'm sorry, um, the fee-for-service uh, within this conversation is frequently you know, demonized and whatnot. Are there, um, I've never heard anybody expound on the advantages of fee-for-service. Great are question. Great question. That's a great question. Other than you know, right. being a specialist and being able to make more money. Right. Uh, there are, I think, the one, a couple advantages. One, it doesn't make us change what we do. And, and that's a bad thing and a good thing. It's a system we're all used to. Um, Secondly, it doesn't create the sort of constraint about undertreatment. You know, there is overtreatment with free for service, but the flip side of that is the potential for undertreatment. Um, the challenge, of course, is that if we have a lot of overutilization, those costs end up being higher premiums next year. So all of these models have pros and cons, and the reason we're testing them is that we actually don't know which ones will be the best. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you for asking it. So I just wanted to, to really share, even though I'm talking about what's happening in, in Vermont, you folks have been incredible leaders. And I told some of my colleagues from the Greenland Care Board that I was going to be here. And first of all, the ACO is really an unprecedented spirit of collaboration between this institution, Fletcher Allen, and the hospitals in the state of Vermont. I was told over and over again about your incredible generosity with your expertise. And so we just want to thank you. The Dartmouth Institute, the Dartmouth Atlas, physician sharing with the small hospitals. I mean, what an interesting model with Mount Scutney. Someone being able to be in Mount Scutney, but be here enough to keep the experience that you need, the volume that you need, the interaction with peers. It's, it's very exciting. Shared decision making, screening induced overtreatment, all that. This is just to name a few. So as I talk about things that are happening here, I don't want it to sound like we think we have the answer. You guys have tons of answers. So we received the $45 million grant to exactly test these three payment reforms against fee-for-service and see what are the outcomes, what are the costs. And I'm going to talk a little bit, first of all, about ACOs. And I was able to um, get these from Kara Suter. I have to say thank you, because it's the clearest example of ACOs I've, I've seen. Yes? Did you get the money from CMS? Yes. Is that with the grant? CMMI. CMMI, which is CMMI. CMS. Yeah. Arm, yeah. The money for the experiment. Yes. The pilot. Yeah. yeah. So CMMI is Medicare, Medicaid, Center for Medicare, Medicaid. CMMI is Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Innovation. Yeah. Innovation. And so it's really, and someplace like Vermont is an ideal place because we're small enough. Yeah. We are small enough. I mean, I used to live in Chicago. Just right to think about doing this in that kind of population. Uh, you know, the data, the volume. So an accountable care organization is comprised of and led by providers who are accountable for the cost and the quality. And this issue of being led by the providers is important because it's one of the ways it's different from the old HMOs. Um, they work together to manage and coordinate care for their patients. Now, I really like this graph because isn't this how we as nurses think? Don't we think you know, across settings or whatever? So the partners are the insurers, the payers, Medicare, Medicaid, and the employers who are paying through uh, premiums with the employees. So this is an, an ACO, and um, an ACO shared savings program <coughs> takes this idea a little further. It's a performance-based contract between the payer and provider that sets forth a value-based program, not a volume-based program, 
And I have to underscore that because you all know that that's a big difference. But it looks like just words on the slide to determine shared savings. So let's see how this works. Oh, I guess first, it's not an HMO because what these models are trying to do is learn from the mistakes of, HBO, of HMOs, the things that didn't work. So there's no food, there's no gatekeeper. Um, patients hated gatekeepers, the gatekeepers hated being gatekeepers. <laughs> you know, um, It's governed by the same providers who are giving the care. And from the patient's point of view, there's no difference. Now, so how does this work? If their provider belongs to an ACO and the ACO accepts the responsibility for the cost and the quality, that's attribution. And this is a big deal. And it's a big deal to nurse practitioners because nurse practitioners can be primary care providers under our rules, commercial ACOs and um, Medicaid, but not Medicare. So that is a big, an issue for some nurses. In any case, people see their primary care providers they usually do. Providers bill fee-for-service, so we're still in a fee-for-service mindset. We're not going to ask too much of systems to change. And how do you calculate the shared savings? Well, you calculate the projected expenditures for a population. So one of the important concepts here is that it is care for a population. So you're giving care to an individual, but you're giving care to a population. That It's really the population you're monitoring the cost and outcome. That's the projected expenditures. That's savings, actual expenditures. But it is risk adjusted because sick people use more services than those that aren't. It's risk adjusted. And that's the shared savings. But of course, you have to meet quality targets, right? Because otherwise, you could just not do anything and save a lot of money, right? Well, that's not the right answer. You have to meet certain quality targets. And then there's a federal match that's shared between the organization and the payer. So Debbie, can I ask a question? Yeah. How does that, your, um, the expenditures and the actual expenditures, how does that differ from a capitated system? Great question. It's still fee for service. All that they're saying here is, OK, let's say we're the, we're the patient group. Or, or this group, there's data on our age, our gender, our pre-existing conditions. Based on that, there's very complicated actuarial things. This whole thing on actuarial science has been an eye-opener to me. Um, so they project what it's probably going to cost to care for that group. And so then they're just saying, can you do it differently? And what this suggests is, I mean, we see, as nurses, I think, opportunities all the time for maybe something that could be done differently, right? This patient really should be seen in home health. Or you know, they keep coming into the emergency room, but I actually think this person's depressed. And so how am I going to think differently about it? or whatever, whatever the scenario is. Now, in the first year, now what if it costs more for that group, right? At least if the standards are, are set in um, the ACOs that we have responsibility for, the Greenmont Care Board, there's no upside risk in the first year. So let's say you spend more than you thought you were going to. And just yesterday, we passed a rule that's maybe a little controversial, that if there's dramatic improvement in uh, quality and cost, or even if they don't make all the targets, we would look at them on an individualized basis. Yes? So for the, just for the purposes of the conversation, you know, Dartmouth is in actually two ACOs, one with Vermont that actually doesn't have an upside risk, so we would lose money. The other ACO that were, we would lose money? Would not. No. 
in the Vermont one. Right. You, we, you could share savings, but not necessarily lose money. In the Pioneer ACO, which you've heard about, which was the first ACO, it was an upside downside shared savings. So we actually made some money there. Right. But we could have lost money there. So it right. is different the right. kind of program you're in. And we're in one of each right now, Pioneer and the One Care Vermont. Thank you for clarifying that. And there was quite a bit of controversy, particularly by the consumer advocates that said, you need to be taking upside risk, otherwise you're not going to change. And provider groups saying, I'm not, can we change quickly enough? Because understand, like behind all of this, there's enormous databases and yeah, all of that. But so upside risk would be this part. And I think in year three, upside risk kicks in here. So it really puts groups in a position of saying, how can, what can we do differently? How can we do it differently? And you've certainly had some success with your Pioneer ACO, which is in place how long? Uh, we're going into the third year. So this one is fee for service, but it nudges a little bit. And it says, you know, if you can do better, you, you can have some money back to do something else. Okay, everybody kind of okay with ACO shared savings? A very nice, great example. Great way to explain it. Thank very you. Nice. Yeah, it's very nice. Thank you. That's why I still. Now, the next one I'm going to talk about, not everything I'm talking about is something that either we, the Great Mount Care Board, are doing. There are things that are happening that I think that are in the state that I can know well that are great examples for nurses. So I guess this one is related to us because we're responsible for how hospital budgets. Two hospitals in Vermont are, are contemplated going to a global budget. And in, why is that? Well, the need to move away from fee-for-service, a way to link payment to the goals of the population, the potential for a match between the service area and the needs of the community. So let me just give you an example. This is a hypothetical example. But say you're in small hospital X, and you're doing OK, right? You're doing OK. You're hanging in there. But what you really know you need to do is suboxone treatment. You know, you need to do more suboxone treatment. But that's not going to be a reimbursable working match in the current model so easily. Or maybe you need to do something different with long-term care or whatever it is. So over time, it, it represents the total amount a community is willing to spend on hospital care, but it gives providers the flexibility to allocate resources in a community-responsive way. So Hospital X, in a global budget that has a large amount of young people having children, might choose to do very different kinds of services than one in hospital in real life. But like a household budget, the hospital has a strong incentive to reduce unnecessary care and to really coordinate services, because they're only going to get so much money. Unlike a fee-for-service system, it's set per member per month, and that's it. Does that make sense, conceptually? Mm -hmm. So that's a much bigger step away from fee-for-service. So they're, they're negotiating with the state, so to speak. They are because in the, the process. the payer? Well, um, they're in the process of figuring out all the parameters about it, yeah. because it, the easy news came first in terms of the detailed planning. Yeah. The question is, do you keep a, a, a fee-for-service shell on the top of it because it makes it less of an initial transition? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, how would it work? How much room is there? So there's two hospitals. Do does a hospital have the data infrastructure that they would need to do this? Because you can imagine somebody who's a frequent flyer in the emergency room. Now, you know, there's a incentive to start thinking differently about how you manage that care. And do they have the database to be able? So there's lots of infrastructure pieces. Now, how big of a change is this? I want you to just think about this for yourself. I'll, I'll just have to read this, because I think this is our own Don Berwick here. 
Major changes in culture, business strategy, and relationships would be required if hostels were to shift from celebrating full breads, beds to celebrating empty ones. Yes. That is a transition. And they go on to say one of the greatest technical challenges in removing waste from the U.S. health care system will be to construct sound and respectful pathways of transition from business models addicted to doing more to only doing what helps. This is a huge transformation. So when they're thinking about being ready, they have to think about infrastructure just to manage the data, but community resources. Are the nurses, physical therapists, and physicians ready to think very differently? Is there the sort of collaborative connections with community resources? It's a big deal. Now, next I want to talk a little bit about a little different concept, bundled payments. Um, bundled payments, remember I talked about how services were unbundled? Well, now we're thinking maybe we should bundle those back in, right? And in bundle, um, bundle payments, the goal is to remove the fee for service incentives and instead reward those with collaboration and evidence-based practice particularly in areas that have targeted, that are expensive. And I'll talk a little bit about super utilizers as examples. And I again said that. I mean, one person said to me after I gave this, well, you know, you should, this is the way nursing care has always been, so this concept should be easy. Um, so I'm going to just give two examples. One is one that was done in the Rutland area, and they were really um, concerned, they were really concerned about um, CHF patients, sort of the revolving door. So they put together an interesting model that includes the hospital, the VNA, the skilled nursing facility, physicians, the federally qualified health center, which is where all of their primary care is in that area, to really think how do they do this differently. They actually now have a nurse who's actually physically located in the ER. So that when patients come in with CHF, they immediately um, Bond, you know, that's part of her responsibility, and put together individualized plans of care coordination. For some patients, it means talking more um, openly about things like palliative care and other kinds of options. And it's very early, but um, they've had um, good financial outcomes, but a marked reduction in their 30-day um, readmission. And the 30-day readmission was obviously a concern but they didn't expect to be able to drop it that dramatically. That shows you. And um, I was able to walk around with the nurse there, and it really is a care-based model. It's a care-based model, which doesn't mean that they don't sometimes need to see, have medical care, but for the most part, it's a care-based model. Does that make sense? So I want to talk um, a little bit about super utilizers writ large. And Super utilizers are 1% of the population, this is nationally, 1% of the population, 22% of the annual costs. And in a budget the size of our healthcare system, that's a lot of money. In Medicaid, it's even more dramatic. 5% of the population is 55% of the costs. So under fee-for-service, there really isn't a, a disincentive not to have these people coming in. And in fact, we often don't even have the opportunity to think about that because we're doing what we're doing, right? If I'm in the emergency room, I see them there or wherever they are. Um, but society is paying through that through taxes and insurance premiums. So, so it's sort of a revolving door that's very expensive and actually probably not that pleasant for the patient, right? Not that pleasant for the patient. So this is a slightly different set of data, but it shows that in um, this band, 3% of the population was 29% of the cost 
for a per member per month cost of over $4,000. Whereas in this healthy band, which is a huge amount of people comparatively, 50% of the people, $49 per member per month. So a lot of these things like global offsetting budgets will be on per member per month because that's a way of metering money. So you can see that this group right here in a different kind of payment system where a group of providers are responsible to a population are very important targets for care. So I want to talk a little bit about the Vermont Chronic Care Initiative. Um, this is a team of nurses and social workers that actually do individual and population management. And you know, care-based care services rather than cure-based services sounds like a very nice thing. The amount of coordination, as you know, that it takes to pull off these things, and the amount of complicated analytics is huge. And this is one of the areas where I challenge all of us as nurses. We, we actually know about coordination of care. We actually know or should know about data analytics. And can we pull that together to serve in new ways? So this is their outcome after the first year. And I just have to give credit to Eileen Grilling and her team, because it wasn't like this is something we did or I did. So after expenses, and this is not an inexpensive program because of the amount of coordination, 11.5 million after expenses. That's pretty impressive. Uh, all these reductions and very, very high patient satisfaction. Um, she didn't quite have the FY13 data ready. Uh, looks even better. So getting better and better. So very different kind of care. So what are the opportunities and professional development implications for nurses. And I say it's not just for nurses. I mean, I was talking to um, one of the individuals from um, Blue Cross Blue Shield whose husband's a med student. And she was asking me if the students get any exposure to payment reform. And I said, yes, actually. The RNWS has a big chunk, and so does the graduate program. And she said that they we're not getting things on payment reform. So it isn't just nurses that sometimes are thinking, what is going on here? I've been socialized at fee-for-service. Because you don't think about it that way. It's just the world you know. So the first thing, I think, is absolutely essential knowledge that we understand how the money works, how things are changing. Understanding and using data for populations. Understanding population impacts. Working in teams across provider types and settings. Remember the earliest graphs that I had about the, the beginning of Blue Cross and Blue Shield? Remember that the guaranteed revenue stream in the beginning was for hospital care and for physician care. you know, And so that's sort of just the way it worked. To actually have general, you know, real teamwork across provider types, understanding the language, the strengths, and is a challenge. This is one of my really big things, is having expanded accountability horizons. Every institution is thinking, and rightfully so, about the next quarter, the next year. We, as, as policymakers, trying to understand the budget it would take to move to a single payer, you know, five-year horizon. But many of these have much longer horizons. So for example, one example, the um, data that's out there on adverse childhood events and um, long-term medical problems. Some of you are nodding. I don't, you know the data better than I do. So five or more adverse childhood events predicts all kinds of disease. So, you know, doing things to have a social framework that supports parenting is not exactly what we think about as healthcare, and yet that is needs to be on our accountability horizon. Yes. And um, I, I also think there's opportunity too to uh, 
provide more care for people who come in with really really fat charts. Yes. Have just look at it and go, gosh, what else is going on? Well, there is stuff going on, rather than just ignore it. Right. To embrace it and figure out what to do. With right. Did everybody hear that comment? Because it's an excellent one. We, the people coming with the big charts, potentially the super utilizers, and we know there's something going on, right? We know there's something going on. Um, I think often, as a young nurse practitioner, one night I read about um, anorexia uh, manifesting and salivary gland enlargement. And sure enough, the next day somebody came in with a salivary gland, a young woman, and I asked her about it, and certainly she had an eating disorder. And I was working with surgeons, and. We didn't know what to do with her or where to go, and I bet she showed up somewhere else. In, you know, she did manage to have her salivary gland removed. We knew how to do that, you know, it didn't unplug. We knew how to do that, but so that sort of coordination and to see across those bands and boundaries, I just think nurses have such an essential role. But it's hard in the current, you know, in the current milieu. It isn't how we think about things, right? Um, I am challenge for all of us is to learn to teach the language of economics. It's not money or being good. They're they're part of the same thing. And I, I really um, love the term economics. It has not caught on. But the term economics was coined by um, I'm blank on his first name, Merrill, who who says it's not something different. They're part of the same thing. And for us to really speak the language of understanding that we have to know how the money works or we can't get things done. We have to know how the systems work. Um, other challenges, knowing the difference between what can be done and what should be done, that's hard. Um, one of the things I've been pushing, and I wanted to do some research on this before I got on the Greenmont Care Board and too busy, I would love to do a survey all the simulated learning labs in the country for nurses and physicians and find out how many scenarios they are, there are in which the right answer is watchful reading. How many, everything accelerates for treatment. And you know, it's just because you only have a lab for so much, and there's other people that have to use it, you only have to practice this skill. Everything pushes us to that. And it's watchful waiting, it's hard. I mean, it takes, it's hard work to, you know, talk to somebody and say, no, you know, I, you know to really have that shared decision making, because that is hard. And if we don't practice it, it's almost like, um, active laziness because we're able to do it. And there's a lot of pressure for patients sometimes to treat. You know, it's easier to just, you know. But so I'm concerned about that. Um, so I think that this issue of health policy finance, population perspective, analytics and information exchange, evidence-based practice, I mean, the work that, that is coming out of here on mammograms is very impressive to me. And I will just give you an example. Um, um, that data was brought forth at the Greenmount Care Board by me. And it's very, very hard for people to think, well, maybe maybe mammograms, maybe is that one we really want to have on the list? It's just too hard. So there's a societal momentum around what's expected. Does everybody know what I'm talking about with mammograms with Gil Welsh's work? So one of your uh, one of your faculty, three of your faculty have been doing a lot of work sort of on screening-induced overtreatment. And one of their studies suggested that 1.3 million women have been treated for breast cancer when, in fact, they had something they would have died with, not of. And that's a hard conversation to have. You know, with, I mean, even with, with, because nurses, we tend to be, you know, just in the screening, whatever. Now, I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be on the list. I'm not, I don't know. But there is evidence there that questions some of those screenings. Yes? So the challenge of this for us was that one of the quality metrics in 
in the ACO mm -hmm. was every woman within a certain age had to have so many mammograms within a certain period of time. And we knew from this research that it really wasn't best. And so our physician group together decided that they would actually not meet that quality metric because you can miss a few. Right. That we would actually not try to meet that screening metric because we felt it was better to do what we knew was right, right. for lower utilization of mammograms. So this is one of the examples where you do make choices about how well you meet the metrics within right. the ACO. Right. Well, it's very interesting because even though we sit on the board as the deciders, there was this enormous group. And when it came to us, because we're like sort of in a quasi-judicial role as the judges at the end, I asked, had this even come up? And it's just like it can't even be. And I think it's extremely important work because if you think about the devastation that being treated for something you don't need to be treated for does to you emotionally as well as what that does to everything else. And so the Choose Wisely program, um, which is the list of, of uh, the tagline is things physicians and patients should question. And there's a big list of them. And I keep thinking, are nurses aware of that list? And, and if, if the physician doesn't order something, isn't, are they going to say to the nurse, what about that? And um, so I think these are really important things. But it's a very challenging societal problem. Because as Americans, we like to have a lot of treatment, right? We feel much better if just in case I want the CT scan and just in case I want this or that. So these are real, real challenges in terms of what does the evidence say and, and can we actually think differently? So more challenges and opportunity, applying this knowledge by facilitating integrated population-focused systems of care. What do I mean by that? Well, I think that's really up to all of you to create. I mean, my sense is that every organization and population has different sets of needs, different sets of strengths. And one of the things, at least, that we're trying to do in Vermont is what Florence Nightingale said, not to do this right thing ourselves, but to assure that the right thing is always done. So how do we set, what are the, the, the broad parameters so that organizations can do what's right? I mean, for example, you have a very different mission with, that includes quaternary and tertiary care. That's a very different kind of, of thing, a different kind of responsibility to society. And then offering solutions and then testing those solutions. Because one of the things that's going to happen, some things won't be good ideas, right? And so we need to test them, and some of them won't work. So my hope is that nurses take more leadership in the redesign of processes of care. Because I believe there are solutions that nobody can see but nurses because of our unique place at that working surface and that interaction with the family and society at large. Uh, Fee-for-service was a barrier in many ways because physicians were viewed as revenue drivers, hospitals as revenue drivers, and nurses as labor costs, right? But now society's figured out that all of us are, are costs. Uh, and so payment reform really brings new opportunities. So um, Porter and Ruth say we must move from a supply-driven healthcare, supply healthcare system organized around what physicians do and toward a patient-centered system organized around what patients need. I think that's pretty tough on our physician colleagues. That puts a lot of both blame and responsibility on them, but I don't think it's very fair. I think we need to move from a supply-driven healthcare system organized around what the medical system does towards a human-centered system organized around human and who better to help support that transition than nurses.
so I wanted to make sure we had time for questions. And I don't know where you were on this spectrum of it's all noise or, you know, I already got it all. Or, but I hope, I hope this helped you go up a little bit on that, that ladder. So I'm open for questions. Yes? What Lori and I were having this e-conversation. Yes. yes. So I was thinking about it, too. So here's the situation. We, I, I'm the diabetes specialist here. We have uh, patients who come into the hospital, not infrequently, who are here in diabetic ketoacidosis because they ran out of insulin and couldn't afford to buy more. Right. So the logical thinker in me says, why don't we just give out insulin? Right. Keep people out of the ICU, and um, it would make so much more logical sense. So. So hopefully, as we move toward population health, that sort of thing will be in our future. But it feels like we're doing a lot of talking about this. But in order to make a big leap from the way we do things today to doing some innovative, logical things like that, right. I, I don't know how we're going to get there. Well, it, it, you actually, that's that bridge piece with that, the, the beginning slide, what's that piece? And a couple of things, you, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it, I mean, we, it's, so anyways, so much of the way we, this is going to, it's just silly. But it evolved that way, and now we got to figure it out. Um, so a couple things on that. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine not too long ago that was called Housing as Healthcare. Now, what really got me excited about that is that this is the New England Journal of Medicine, which has been pretty medical model, you know, um, reductionalistic. That's pretty radical thinking. And there are some, some physicians who are giving prescriptions for different kinds of things like that that are, are not, um, not traditional healthcare. One of the things we're doing in Vermont, and I'm very hopeful about this, um, a little apprehensive, but very hopeful, we, we have the charge to do a unified healthcare budget. And Dr. Karen Hyde and I, who's a physician on the board, she was on the IOM, we are determined to do a unified health budget. And here's what we want to do. We have a database that has all claims for everything in the state. So we have data. So we're pretty confident we can get to the healthcare, what are we spending, healthcare costs. We want to go to the next ring and include health, which would be everything else that's done in health. And that becomes a little bit more complicated. But for example, um, how much of your property taxes go to the school for the teacher's healthcare benefits? So there's costs in there. What I'm most interested in is that outside ring. And there has been modeling in the environmental area of um, genuine costs that actually looks at, for example, if you overspend on X, what happens to money available for Y and Z. So one of the pieces that we hope to do is to actually get a better sense on some of those kinds of things. And where I would see something like that uh, fitting in is having the kind of data on where we fall through the cracks gives us the potential to actually create different kinds of designs. And it seems to me, potentially, in a post-fee-for-service era, um, there is real demand that's all over to, to figure out that problem. That person coming in now is no longer revenue in a post-fee-for-service world that Vermont's trying to move to. That's expense. Mm -hmm. And it's always been expense to society, and it's certainly been personal expense to the, to the patient. So that's why I get really excited about payment reform. And everybody's really excited about the single payer. And I think that's all very interesting and very important and all of that. But to me, it's really the redesign of the working surface is going to be fed through payment reform. Does that answer the question? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's really an opportunity. It is. Right. And, and bundled payments for that population group would make a difference. 
I just have a question. Thinking about prevention, keeping people out of the hospital. Right. I understand that. So how will the HMO model for that prevention strengthen? Or mm -hmm. what are we doing in that realm to do more to keep people? Did everybody hear the question? What about prevention? What are we doing? Well, a couple of things that are, I think, quite sort of simple policy fixes, but important ones is in the Affordable Care Act, and certainly in Vermont, and I don't know what's happening, I apologize, in terms of your reform, because I've been kind of poured into, <laughs> into ours. Um, there are no deductibles and co-pays for what are considered essential preventative services. Now, that only gets at a, at a piece. I just saw the data for the Medicaid kids in Vermont. So no deductibles or co-pays for that group. 20% of those kids still never see the dentist. And the, the issue I would assume is behind that is, is really the social determinants of health, the complexity. If you're living somewhere and you don't have the car or you have to take a day off work or you can't find, so, so all of those kinds of pieces are really huge. Um, certainly there are things in our agricultural policy in terms of the kinds of foods we subsidize and the kinds we don't. There's all kinds of other policy pieces that have a piece, for example, around obesity and prevention. Um, then the other side of that, just to put in a little different hat, um, certainly the attention to prevention, the, uh, disease prevention and health promotion will really certainly save costs and keep people healthier in the short run. There is a question, and that's a good reason to do it. The question is, does that compress costs for later? And there is some data from, I think it is Holland and the Netherlands, I'm forgetting, as well as one Canadian uh, province, they actually then compress costs for the management of a disproportionate number of very old elders with multiple chronic conditions, including cognitive disorders. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't focus on prevention, but my sense is that illness will always be there. And certainly the big one looming now is cognitive disorders. You know, if you don't die of something young, you're gonna you're gonna die of something, and unless it goes, you know. So I, I think that's a very complicated knot. So there are some policy pieces. Um, the other thought on this is that if we stop overspending, putting so much in our um, healthcare system and it frees up money for other segments of our societal infrastructure that actually then can support um, sort of the social determinants. I mean, there are some studies that basically say workplace wellness programs, who goes to them, people who are fit anyway, you know? And so, so there is this, there is this sort of dichotomy there. So not an answer. I'm sorry. I'll go there and then there and then there. Yes. Uh, I live in Vermont and um, I have the misfortune or fortune of many years ago marrying a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Which and so we've had a long-term conversation about here, and uh, sometimes I just stop talking. But I think it, it represents one of the dilemmas we see in Vermont, which is. We're proposing very avant-garde things, which I think will be wonderful, but most folks don't have a clue about what it means. And that's the dinnertime conversation that I have on a regular basis. Finally, I say, time out, I'm not doing this anymore. But I think that all of this education for nurses is really important. I'm really concerned that we're not educating the populace, because they're the ones that are going to elect the representatives, they're going to ditch the whole thing. and when. VPR says that the single payer is going to cost twice as much as it was proposed. Everybody, you know, just goes crazy. 
So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. That's a great question. Well, a couple of things. The chair of the Green Mountain Care Board, I don't know if you've met El Gobey, is the first one to say he is a capitalist. He believes in capitalism, and this this system is too expensive. I mean, he's very much on, and I think that's actually, you know, I think hearing the voice of a business person saying this is not sustainable for our businesses. The current system of 20. Right. Yeah. 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 And um, I think part of the challenge is that it really is complicated. I mean, you know, I, I keep thinking about um, um, oh, Richard Feynman, who his goal was to make quantum physics just so simple you could, you know. And of course, that's sort of my goal when I'm thinking about these things. I'm actually writing a book on health economics to make it simple. It's really complicated. And when they did polls in the Clinton era, Daniel Yankovic did a big national poll, and people were um, told about what was called managed competition. It was widespread support. And then when they were asked what they thought about Clinton's reform plan, it was widespread negativity. And it's really, you know, so this sort of understanding what something is. Um, one of the things that is going to happen with the, the single parent that's proposed in Vermont, we have different independent modelers because we have to have a really good idea of what it would cost. And of course, that partially relates to the benefits package, but it relates enormously to how we deliver care, you know, because there are so many different things happening at once. Um, so, so it is a complicated piece. But I think the one thing that's different, I chaired the healthcare finance reform and effort in, in North Dakota from 90, 90 to 95. And what's different now is like everybody's unhappy with it. You know, in a sense, providers feel the pressure of all the data and, you know, having to produce in a certain kind of way. And, and employers are like, this is too expensive. And so there is, I think, much more of a movement towards change. And remember, Medicare, there's a lot of controversy about Medicare when it was first passed. A lot of controversy. And so what piece of that is noise that you listen to and learn from? things that you push through. And some of these models will try and say, that didn't work. But certainly, at least some of the data that we have so far on bundled payments by conditions is actually very encouraging. I hope that, that information gets widely disseminated because that's the concrete stuff right. that makes a real difference for people to understand. Well, you know, my mother, who was in Montscutney Hospital at the Justin Hopkins 12 years ago, um, spent a lot of money in the right. healthcare system. Because there was no way to give have a nurse come visit her in her assisted right. living facility. Right. Right. And that's just right. dumb. Right. Right. And and some of the opportunities around um, telemonitoring, you know, so if weight goes up, I mean that's one of the things they do is like the day they call, your weight's up, what's going on? So back there and then there, yes. Um, so I thought that the <clears throat> RACO was moving towards a capitated system, um, but I guess that's that's not correct. And, and piggybacking on what um, Mary was saying about the insulin, and then you know, read about great programs like um, Boston Children's. They um, uh, have nurses go out to asthmatics uh, houses and gave them free inhaler, and they're able to cut their um, you know emergent asthma admissions by like 80 percent and right. whatnot. You know, do you think that the kind of uh, savings, value sharing system that we have set up under our current ECO structures provide enough incentive to start leveraging those kinds of concepts, or are we going to have to go further maybe towards a captive or some other kind of system where we're really going to start, you know, seeing those as worth pursuing? Right. That's a great question. I don't know much about Frontier, so maybe you want to address that. 
And then I can talk a little bit about others' perspectives. Well, I'll just say that the uh, pioneer is really the ACO model, but there's lots of people who agree that that's not the, probably the final model. And this global capitation, I mean, a lot of people think a global capitation model is where we will end. And so I'm interested in what you right. think about where might we right, be going right. after. You know, many people think ACO is just an experiment to what is next. Right. Well, one of the things that is very interesting about an ACO model, I, I did ask um, the group who they're, um, who's on their board. And they said it's a very, very diverse board. And it was all different kinds of physician providers. Chad, I was like, you know. And, men and women. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it was interesting. You know, so it, it isn't sort of, and I was like, you know, maybe when I'm but I think that, that we're all sort of limited by what we know and what we've experienced. And what I'm really hoping is that nurses broadly, staff is broadly say, I have an idea about how we could do this better. And both know how to say that and have it heard, because I think that's actually really important. And I don't think we know where any of this will end up, nor maybe can we or should we, because it's an evolution. And um, the the Maryland has moved very, the state of Maryland has moved very aggressively towards formal hospital budgets. But it still is within the fee-for-service shell. It looks like it's fee-for-service to providers. And I always get my head scratched a little bit because I'm thinking, how does that help them change their behavior? Because it's not the same world. So um, I don't know where it's going to go, but I do know for sure it's not going to look like it did five years ago, and it's not going to look like it did now. Because you know, all of you who are in the cohort are going to baby boomers, you cannot afford to have baby boomers moving into old age together, having over-treatment, for one thing, much less, you know, I, I feel this very painfully as an ethical commitment. I do not want my generation to squash the opportunities of the, of the younger generation because of our inability to address this. And, and you know, whether it's in life care, I want to die comfortably at home, you know, with my family whatever it is. And so I think this is our opportunity to how do we shape the world we want to live in. And you know, whether it's patients who can't get their insulin, patients who aren't compliant. Um, I was worked in inner city Chicago at one time, and I was doing health promotion on a man. And he said, to, talking to me, he said, you know, you seem like a very nice young girl, but I've lost two sons in gang wars. And I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And he wasn't compliant with his medication. He lived in a horrible poverty violent neighborhood. And so really these issues of social inequity, poverty, uh, educational opportunity are at the heart of, of this. Um, so I don't have an answer. But I do think collectively we could do better than we've done. Yes? Um, so I just moved here from the Deep South in one of the states that did not expand Medicaid. Um, and I know that um, we working. We have a Well, Georgia is uh, being behind on a lot of things, but um, they, uh, one of the things I've worked with is neonatal patients and, and bringing them home. And one of the things, challenges I had was trying to get them Medicaid patients primary care physicians. And we had a big lack of primary care physicians that would take Medicaid patients and only take a certain percentage right. because of the cost differences. And I see as we were enrolling more and more, it was becoming more and more challenging. Um, so I don't know what Vermont is kind of looking to help with that. That's a great, great, great question. Did everybody hear the issue of Medicaid? So 
So the issue of payer mix is very important in any organization. And if you think about Medicare pay, you're supposed to pay a cost, uh, essential uh, critical access hospitals get paid at cost plus, Medicaid below cost. You can't run an organization being paid below cost. And for example, this example of the super utilizers was really Medicaid patients, Medicaid patients, trying to redesign that. One of the things Vermont is trying to do is get rid of that, that shift. Because remember, it's being picked up by having higher charges to those who are uh, have employer-based insurance. So it's like a it's like something feeding on itself. But we are trying to take care of that shift. But um, Vermont has uh, people covered to a very high level of poverty. Um, so I, uh, in some some categories, 400 uh, 400% poverty. So it's a very different world. And when I was in North Dakota, one of our big successes was moving from 30% of poverty to 100% of poverty. So I, I understand that not every state is the same. But it's hard, I think, to understand that it's actually costing everybody. Yeah. And another problem that I'm worried about, this is my new latest one keeping me up at night, is opiate, opiate addiction and opiate addicted mothers. And, and you know, what are we going to do about that? And that's really a huge thing. Another issue we've had, and I, you probably have the resources here, we have hospitals in Vermont that can't place psychiatric patients and they can't receive medications involuntarily. At our hospital budget hearing, one hospital had um, a patient in the emergency room so long that he or she was getting mail there, had taken up residency. Now that's, that's a failure of our system, unless I was really working for the patient in the hospital. But, so here's this person in the emergency room as this place is trying to see other patients in the emergency room. And those are real, you know, I, I think we're better people than this. Yeah. We are better people than this, and we can create a better society. And that's one thing I'm excited about, you know, really in being in Vermont, having new folks here, you know, premier academic medical center that can give the kind of specialized care, you know, that's, you know, amazing. And yet we are a community who can understand and you know, it seems like we should be able to figure something out. Um, so I don't have an answer, but that's really yeah. it's really we a problem. We just saw so many remissions because families would be like, well, I couldn't find a doctor. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have any money and you have a sick kid and you're, you know, you might as well go through the emergency room, right? You know, I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, so you can kind of see that piece and, and you're just trying to, to survive, to, to struggle through. Uh, Let's see. Well, I was just going to say, I moved from Vermont about eight years ago, and just as I was moving out, my primary physician developed a fee for belonging to his practice. Yeah. And that seems to be spreading. It seemed at that time, I heard more of that. I don't, didn't keep up to know what's happening now. But you just had to pay so much to even be able to access. Right. I have gotten letters, or I've had um, citizens contact me, and they're often elderly and not understanding the letter to begin with, because they can obviously see somebody else, especially if they're on Medicare. You know, people usually only see Medicare patients, and I don't know if that particular one is the concierge service where you pay so much for the personalized service. That is happening a fair amount, and it's very confusing, particularly to an elderly person who's been seeing the person actually have a relationship, and now they have this letter. And they may even have the means, but do they want to do it or not? So, so, but I think that also shows that a lot of providers are disgruntled with the current system. And, you know, and one of the things we're 
piloting, trying, we're hoping. We want to do some pilots of getting rid of pre-authorization and seeing what happens to utilization. Because in some of the small areas, they have a whole person just to do pre-auth when they only have a team of four people. And so we're also hoping some of those kinds of things will not result in an exorbitant increase in cost, but greater provider satisfaction. So I don't know if the heart of that is patient sat provider satisfaction. But I do think providers do feel bludgeoned by all the data. I mean, we hear all the time now maybe even more data. So this is a shift. Yes. But um, you are role modeling for us the importance of being in a leadership role, and specifically relative to your position on the Green Mountain Board. Could you just comment a bit in your career? What are the things that you did that really prepared you to be serving in this kind of a leadership role? <coughs> so could you just talk about well, that? Well, thank bit? you. That's a great question. I feel, first of all, very lucky in that people put opportunities in front of me that I didn't even want. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I really mean that. And one of the things that, that is really important to me is I think each one of us has to you know, help each other along here. And I, I ended up chairing the healthcare finance reform effort in North Dakota purely by accident. I was in graduate school. I had one baby and a second baby. And um, I thought about Marie Curie who chose her dissertation topic so she could take her two daughters to the lab. And I had grown up in a rural area, and I'm, I'm interested in rural health. So what, the reason I'm sharing that is this metaphor of a ladder doesn't always work. It's a jungle gym. It's here's what it is. So when I was there, um, I, was, um, I represented the Nurses Association, so I, I would suggest belonging to a group. And I was asked to represent nurses on this group of 33. And within nine months, I was asked to serve as chair. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had had a health policy class in graduate school and I had done the line. Very different than being on the working surface of you know, having to testify or anything. So I think that everything you can learn matters, even if you don't use it at the time. You don't know. You don't know when it's going to matter. So I think that that was really important. I think being open to being uncomfortable to be, um, there's Carolyn Helbrun, who's a wonderful writer, says, even as we're growing to fill the space we're in, we're outgrowing the space we're in. And to really be willing to, to not know. When I, and students in my R and BS class, I told them, you know all kinds of things that I will never know. Um, but here's some things maybe I can help you with. So I think that that's really important. Um, I think a realistic appraisal of your strengths and weaknesses and building on your strengths is really important. Um, and then some you can kind of correct. I almost didn't go to college because I didn't want to take speech, speech class, because I was very timid. Well, I had to like, walk up, <laughs> get over it, you know? And so, so that, that was something. Um, one of the things I think is absolutely essential is that nurses do not learn to talk the money, the, the language of money. And if you don't know how the money works and the incentives in the system, it's very difficult to leave because all kinds of good ideas are not going to get anything None of us wants to work for free, right? We have obligations. So I think plunging into that world, um, I feel very passionately about the need for RNs to have at least a bachelor's degree, not because they don't have good technical skills, but how can you possibly pick this up on your own? You know, can, you, can people really pick this up on their own? Um, and I think it's so the issues of health policy and health financing. Um, I've also had periods in my life where it's like, well, that's over. And 
you know, that holding that space of not knowing. So I was dean for a number of years and then really felt for a number of reasons that I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I resigned. And I had, you know, it was going from working 70 hours a week to like having a little time on my hands, you know? And that was when I really started working to, te uh, to um, teach online. So I think that that's really important. And people talk about mentors. I have never, I've had bits, bits and pieces that I've had from other people, but I don't think you can sort of, you know, make that up. So I would say um, always being open to learning, plunging yourself into new learning opportunities, build on your strengths, seize the table. I one time was on a co-chairing a committee with Madeline Kunin, former governor, former ambassador Madeline Kunin. And I loved because I always come in the room because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to not, I don't want to be dominant or anything. Madeline comes and sweeps to the front. <laughs> you know? And she sits down, you know, and I was like, that was really a good move because she wanted to take control. And I think many of us don't want to, you know, it's not like we want power or whatever. But that's a problem. It's sort of the virtue narrative, you know. And so I think, I think really always being open to learning something new, throwing yourself in an uncomfortable situation, being willing to be uncomfortable for a while. Um, there's a great book called, called Lean In. Do you know the book? Uh, take, take a look at it. It's really about women's difficulty with ambition. But I think it's true for, for nurses' difficulty with ambition. I've toyed whether or not I should use this in this um, board boot camp. And um, because I think, I think it's difficult sometimes, the virtue narrative gets in the way of being ambitious. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. And because it's really about serving. And it was one of my mentors who one time, someone said to me, well, Betty, you're ambitious. And I said, oh my god, what a horrible thing to be. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know myself. It's like, and then one of my mentors said, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Really? Wow. Um, so so I, I think the world needs what we have to offer. And, um, and many of you could have other similar kinds of stories. Um, I am a mother of three children. I'm right now a single parent of a 15-year-old. And, and I think the either-or thing gets in a way sometimes, too. It is really hard to um, not have this or that. And I'm so glad I did. I never had maternity leave. I schlepped my kids all over with me. Um, and my daughter's now in graduate school. She just assumes she'll schlep all over, too, you know? And so I think that sort of, those are some, so a little bit of blabbering, but I think understanding the money, building on your strengths, not being afraid to be ambitious, not being afraid to elbow in. That was good. Thank you. Well, it looks like we're at our end. Thank you so much for the invitation. It means a lot to me to be able to be with nurses, and it means an extraordinary amount for me to be able to be here with you. Um, I'd really encourage you to, you know, that piece of, you know, helping others along and really thinking how we can have a common dialogue so we can take these things that we know about all kinds of things, whether it's diabetes care or whatever, care to serve the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.